the developments in the world east and west. And these developments have led, uh, have led some people to say that Marxism is dead. Marxism is over. It's irrelevant. It's obsolete. Uh, it has nothing to say about the world. It's a failure. And that's been proven by the collapse of communist governments in Eastern Europe. Uh, I'm not too worried about the question of Marxism being dead, because I've been hearing that for 40 years now, that Marxism is irrelevant, that it, it doesn't work, it, that history has proven it wrong. But let me say that Marxism is not a theory about existing socialist societies, pre preponderantly. The corpus of Marxist theory is about something else. The amount of Marxist writings about existing social societies is very small. About what socialism would, would look like, that theory is, is very underdeveloped, in fact. And I, and I think, in a way, that practice went way ahead of theory in that respect. In many societies, we always hear that theory is all mapped out, but it doesn't, uh, you, you never get it developed in practice. It's easy to spin a theory, but there's no practice. In fact, more often than not, it's the other way around, that there's often quite a th bit of things happening and the theory hasn't been developed to explain what's happening. Theory often is catching up to practice. And the Marxist theory about existing social societies is a very naive theory. It said that once you get rid of capitalism, once you heal uh, certain contradictions and abuses and exploitations in society, and once you communalize uh, the social production, uh, people are going to act differently and people are going to be really happy, et cetera, et cetera. And that isn't quite what happened. Marxism, the other 90% of Marxism, is about capitalism. Marxism is a theory about capitalism. And it's a theory which says that capitalism has certain dynamics. Capitalism has a tendency to accumulate capital for the sake of accumulating capital. That's what Marxism says. Marxism says that capitalism is not a system about building jobs or building communities or creating work or creating a better standard of living. That capitalism will create jobs or destroy jobs depending on whether or not there's profit. It will create communities, Levittowns, whatever else, ticky-tack boxes, whatever else. It will create beautiful houses if there's someone who could pay beautiful prices. Or it will destroy communities, as it destroyed Pole Town in Chicago, to build a Cadillac plant. It will create jobs, or it will close out jobs through automation or through exporting those jobs to cheaper labor markets in Hong Kong or South Korea, whatever else. The capitalism is a dynamic that has very little to do with human needs. It's a dynamic that has to do with the maximization of profit. Its central imperative, the central law of capitalist motion and development, is the maximization of profit, is capital penetration for the sake of capital accumulation. And it will use this, the, the environment as a septic tank, not because people are nasty, not because they're stupid and anything else, but because that is rational. It's rational to do that. And that's the Marxist analysis of capitalism. And that's the difference between a liberal complaint and a radical analysis. Because the liberal will spend the rest of his life complaining about these things being wrong and saying, aren't we foolish? Aren't we irrational? 
that we foul our environment in this way? When are we going to come to our senses? The implication always is that the person who's saying that is somehow morally better and nicer and would do differently than all the other silly, foolish, confused people around. And the Marxist analysis says, no, that isn't true. That the reason Firestone built that tire company plant on the Mill River in Connecticut and took a river that Mother Nature had spent a hundred million years developing that was used for recreation and fishing and drinking water and Firestone dumped that raw industrial effusion into that water wasn't because they were foolish, because they were confused or silly, but they were rational. Because their commitment wasn't to that river, it wasn't to the environment, it wasn't to children playing, it wasn't to future generations, it wasn't to the community, although they'll say that in their PR propaganda as they're doing now with Earth Day, Exxon coming out with ads on Earth Day blows my mind. I say, where am I, 1984, or well, what, what is this? Exxon, we love the Earth too. Well, we've had a few little rough spots here or there, but we're with you on Earth Day. Because they had nothing to do with that. And that's a Marxist analysis. And the Marxist says it's quite rational to dump your raw if, industrial effusion into that river because that maximizes your profits. And the essence of that system is the maximization of profit is capital accumulation. And every other human value is secondary and in fact possibly even antagonistic to that value. It doesn't matter. Then those values shall be smashed. Sometimes some of them can be accommodated, if they can be accommodated within the parameters of profit. If not, then they have to go. So that's the difference, and that's what capital... Now, if you want to say, if you want to say that that analysis is no longer pertinent, because Lech Fawenza has proven himself to be what I always knew he was, a right-wing uh, a, a, a right, a right capital, capitalist admirer. If you want to say that, I don't get the connection. I don't see that at all. The liberal will say, look how foolish, how wasteful our military budget is. The Air Force builds an F-16 fighter plane and the Navy Air Force builds an F-16 fighter plane, which is almost a duplicate. Total duplication, billions of dollars duplicated when we already had that weapon. Isn't that foolish and wasteful? And the Marxist analysis says, no, that's not foolish and wasteful. That's only foolish and wasteful from a human point of view, from the taxpayer's point of view, from the needs of your human community. But who the hell ever said capitalism had anything to do with the human community? If you think it does, just listen to George Bush and find out what has he ever been saying about the needs of a human community two years in office. It's not wasteful. It's wonderful if you're a defense contractor, then it's wonderful to have a contract with the Navy and one with the Air Force, and you'll even go for one with the Marines and with the CBs, and you'll try to sell the F-16 to the Coast Guard if you could do it, if you could get away with it. It's perfectly rational. And so you've got to decide, are you going to spend the rest of your life as a half-assed liberal complaining about the irrationalities and the foolishness of all these programs? That's all we ever hear in the media to the extent we get any criticisms of existing policy. Or are you going to point out the links of class power and class interest that are behind those things, that keep doing those things? Do you really think that because you don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're doing?
And that's why when someone says, how can you still be a Marxist? It's like someone saying to me, how can you still think there's a law of gravity? Don't you see we have an airplane now? How could I pretend that it's just foolish or that, that I don't know why the U.S. is in El Salvador or that they're in Central America because they are just got some ego thing uh, or they're in Central America because they're chasing ghosts and they're all confused in their policy. It's very rational to be in Central America. You're in Central America because you have to keep the world safe for this global process of capital penetration and capital accumulation. And the countries you attack and go after are the ones which might take a revolutionary path or not even so revolutionary. Our Benz in Guatemala wasn't a revolutionary. Goulard in Brazil wasn't a revolutionary. Sukarno in Indonesia wasn't a revolutionary. Allende in Chile wasn't a revolutionary. Mossadegh in Iran wasn't a revolutionary. The Greek premiers uh, under Papandreas weren't revolutionaries when the, when the fascist generals came in. But what they were, they were populist nationalists. Noriega and the People's Democratic, the, the Democratic Revolutionary Party in Panama isn't a revolutionary party. It's a populist party. But it's a left military in Panama. It was. The People's Defense Force was. The Panamanian Defense Force was a left force. And they used to shake down the companies. Instead of nationalizing them, they shook them down. And then they took that money and built social programs. Panama had social welfare programs. It had social security. It had human services. They were developing it. By Central American standards, they were pretty good. And that has to be destroyed. And when it became clear that Noriega wasn't our man, but he was continuing in Torrios' path, Torrios, who was killed by the CIA, I charged them with that murder when his plane mysteriously blew up in midair, then Tor Noriega had to go. But we're not in Panama to get Noriega. We got Noriega several months ago. But we're there and we've arrested thousands of trade union leaders and political leaders and intellectuals. Panama City University is being purged of left people. Other people are being rounded up. And now you can say, I don't understand why we're in Panama. I don't understand why we're in Central America. I don't understand why we did that in Indonesia. I don't understand why we back the wrong side all the time. It's not the wrong side. It's the wrong side from a human point of view. It's the wrong side from a point of view of social justice. But it's the correct side. That's correct policy. That's correct policy if your constituency is the Fortune 500. Then it's correct policy to go into those countries and keep them open for capital penetration and capital accumulation on your terms where those resources are yours, where those markets are yours, where that workforce is a cheap labor force, where you can pay them not $7 an hour, not $11 an hour like you got to do in Ohio or, in Sh or California, but you can pay them 70 cents an hour. And that's very rational. I mean, we're talking about billions of dollars in difference. Billions of dollars that would otherwise go to the people who work for wages and salaries or have pensions. Billions of dollars taken from the pockets of the people who live off interests and dividends and commission royalties, like when they own land that has oil on it or something, and rents. That class 
is the class that is served by George Bush. If you think not, then you tell me what is his tax policy. He has only one tax policy, which is to cut capital gains. In fact, the only domestic bill that George Bush has pushed for in two years that he's been in office is a cut in the capital gain. I mean, really pushed with, you know, calling up senators, lining up boats and all that sort of thing. It's a cut in the capital gains tax, cutting it for that point one half of one percent of the population that would benefit from that tax cut. In every other area, he's doing nothing. In the environment, he's doing nothing. He gets up before an international environmental group two months ago and he says, considerations about the environment must always take into account, must always take into account. Uh, he has that dynamic way of talking, just turns you on, sets you on fire and you know, he's like, Go for it, Georgie. Go. Oh, God. He said, he said, considerations of environments always take into account the free market and economic development. Translated, profits before environment. He was saying, he was saying what I just said. You see, the argument that Marxists make is that George Bush is Marxist. He doesn't know he's Marxist, but he is performing. He says what we say he says. He said, screw your environment, buddy. It's profits first. Senator Stephen Sims of uh, Iowa, Idaho, Idaho, made a very good point. He said it much better. On a radio interview not long ago, I heard him. He said... If it's a question of choosing between ecology and capitalism, then I'm picking capitalism. I thought that was a fast. I said, wait a minute. What do you mean you're picking capitalism over ecology? It's like someone saying, if it's a question of choosing between smoking or my lungs, I'm picking smoking, you know. But you need your lungs even for smoking. Um, so when they say that when they say that Marxism is no longer relevant, I don't know what they're talking about because that's what a Marxist analysis is. It's analysis about the laws of capital, motion, and development and about class, power, and interest. It's also an analysis about another capitalist force, the most potent and powerful in shaping the map of the world, the most potent and powerful over the last 500 years, which you never studied in school i'll bet most of you maybe one or two which you never studied in school because it's a because capitalism is not only an economic order it's a whole social order it's not just an economic system it's a whole social system and in capitalist and in the west you don't study it but marxism is a study is a study of that other most potent force in the history of mankind over the last five centuries it's called imperialism and it has carved up the world. It has murdered literally millions upon millions of people, either by direct violence or through starvation and deprivation and other ways. And it's not taught. I can tell you, you can get a PhD in political science from Yale University and never once study imperialism. I, you're looking at it. You're looking at someone who did that very thing. And when I wrote my book, The Sword and the Dollar, it kept occurring to me, why did I have to wait till now, now to, uh, to, to read or discover some of the things that I'm writing about? So that's what Marxism is about. It's, about, it's, it's a study of capitalism and it's a study of imperialism.
it makes some other statements. It says that the process of capital accumulation and concentration is an indigenous characteristic, an inherent tendency. By the way, a tendency doesn't mean it's an inevitable and must always be manifested, but it's an inherent tendency is the tendency toward increasing concentrations of capital. Is that no longer relevant? Can someone come up, come up and say that's no longer relevant? When over the last eight years, the 10 largest mergers in the 400 year history of capitalism took place in the last eight years, giant multinational conglomerates not gobbling up smaller companies but gobbling up other giant multinational conglomerates when a giant multinational conglomerate, conglomerate like NBC Incorporated which owns media and TV and radio stations and publishing houses and recreation parks and, and things in the three different continents when NBC is gobbled up by a still larger giant multinational conglomerate called General Electric or sometimes the smaller one buys out the bigger one but it doesn't matter the amazing concentration of capital that's going on that's what Marx wrote about if that's not correct then Marxism is irrelevant if it is correct then you might want to give a better look at what's happening another thing that the Marxists say is that there is along with this growing concentration of capital growing immiseration growing impoverishment of masses of people. Well, that's not that's not relevant. Everybody's middle class. We all got VCRs now and all that sort of thing. Well, you got to look at the whole globe and you will find that, in fact, the trend over the last 40 years has been for increasing impoverishment, increasing poverty, increasing malnutrition because, because of that capital concentration and that capital penetration and capital accumulation. The Brazilian miracle of the 1960s, which showed a growth in the in the growth in the gross national income and the gross national product of the nation, also created the black bean shortage. That land that used to be used for beans and rice and corn was taken away and used by agribusiness to grow tobacco and coffee and sugar and cotton and beef for cash export markets elsewhere. And of course it's going to mean an increase in your gross national product. Of course you're making more money off that land when you're, when you're growing coffee for commercial markets than when some peasants own it and they're growing beans and corn. But the people are starving. What that gross national product increase doesn't show you is that the maldistribution is increasing. And so all throughout the world you see that tendency. Not just the poor, but even what's called the middle class in the third world. And the middle class is a very rather privileged stratum. They too are suffering and being dragged down and are complaining about the terrible problems they're having. So the Marxist prediction that the tendency in capitalism is for an increasing, an increasing impoverishment of the masses is true. Even in our own country, the country that those Eastern Europeans love and dream of and talk about with stars in their eyes when you talk to them and they say, oh, but in America, it's different. In America, you don't know. I know because I have seen it on your television. In America, it's different. Even in our own country, in the last 10 years, the number of people living below the poverty level have gone from 24 million to 35.5 million, now down to 34 Point four or five million. 
what that means in the last decade, the poor are the fastest growing social group in America. Well, that's what Marx was talking about. Even putting aside the poor, that again, that middle class is finding all sorts of people who have to hold down two jobs. People who today are working much harder just to stay in the same place. Real wages have gone down in the last 15 or 20 years, since 1977 or earlier. So that doesn't sound like it's too far off the mark. That sounds like a very real description. Not only a description of what's happening, because you can make a prediction for totally wrong reasons. You know, conservatives are sometimes right. I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day, as they say. And so, uh, you, but not only that, that prediction, but giving you an analysis and an explanation as to why that dynamic can be happening. Why you can have 35 million poor amidst so much wealth. Marxists also say that there are growing levels of exploitation and capital accumulation, and that's true. The degree of profits are terrific. That In the midst of all that profits, there's a growing tendency to have a falling rate of profit, so that no matter how rich and big and how much you're making, your profits are never really stable. There's always a problem of them going down. There's always a problem of even the richest corporations going out of business. Um, <clears throat> which again is true. You saw Chrysler almost crash and went out. It didn't go because of the M1 tank. The Marxist description of capitalism is that it's a force which goes everywhere in the globe, turning every corner of the world into its own image. That process is still going on today. And maybe you read about a month ago in the LA Times a special report on the rainforests of Borneo in the South Pacific. Here you have people who've lived very beautiful lives by the descriptions. They had their own orchards and groves in the jungles. They had, um, they raised food, they hunted and all that. And it's all being wiped out as capitalism comes in for the hard wood and turns these people quite systematically, quite deliberately into wage earners. Getting them, and the way you turn people like that into wage earners is you deprive them of the there go after the wage as being the thing which will sustain them. That, by the way, is a capital is a Marxist analysis. You can read Marxism every day in your daily newspapers. The dynamics that have been discussed by Marx, Che Guevara. We can't help it that in Latin America, reality is Marxist. That there are very rich people and they live off the backs of the poor, and that the impoverishment is increasing, um, and that they use the power of the state to defend their holdings and to prevent competing or alternative social orders from coming in <clears throat> to develop uh, and use the land, the labor, the capital, the markets in a different way what's happening in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet Union because I think the same process is going on there I think there too you can see capitalism at work one of the factors never talked about and it's not talked about by Russians by Soviet writers either who right now are in an imbecilic orgy of self-flagellation and criticism to the point where uh, the more negative they can be about their society the better they seem to feel a few years ago, you could never say anything negative 
about the Soviet Union if you were there. They never say, and you say, what's the problems? We don't have any problems. You must have some problems. Or, no, 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 it's not. Now, they can't say anything positive. Those same people are now in an orgy of um, self-criticism. <clears throat> but the one thing they never talk about, because they're too busy flagellating themselves, is that the failure of these communist societies is not just a failure of socialism, uh, of that particular form of state socialism or siege socialism. It's a, it's, a, it's a victory of capitalism. It is an example of capitalism at work. Because for 70 years in the Soviet Union, for 40 years in Eastern Europe, and for 10 years in Nicaragua, for 30 years in regard to Cuba, you have had capitalist encirclement. And one of the major factors in the failure of these societies is the power of capitalist encirclement. That capitalist encirclement has meant invasions, civil wars, sabotage, mercenary armies, destruction of the productive facilities of the society, more invasion, more sabotage, economic boycott, economic embargo, monetary embargo, technological embargo, which have distorting effects upon a society. In May of 1921, Lenin got up before the Bolshevik Party Convention and he said, we've had enough with the workers' opposition. Let's get rid of them. Now, the workers' opposition were loyal Bolsheviks. They were communists. They were in the Bolshevik Party. They were in the Communist Party. When the Kronstadt Rebellion came, the workers' opposition did not side with the Kronstadt sailors. They sided with the party. In the Civil War, they were with the party. Throughout all the struggles, the workers' opposition were with the party. But they had formed a self-conscious caucus that had decided that it would represent the particular interests of the industrial proletariat against the party itself at times. And after all this invasion, all this destruction, all this terrible death and, and, and struggle, where Lenin once said Soviet Russia is like a man with a death fever just hanging on by an inch of his life, after all that, Lenin turned and said, we've had enough opposition. The feeling very much was that that opposition was a wedge, an opening. It invited our enemies, our mortal enemies, to come in and attack us and divide us. And the party convention uproariously supported him and said, no more workers' opposition, no more factions within the party. So right there, that emphasis on a monolithic party. And by the way, that same month or the month before, in, in April, Lenin called for a strengthening of the trade unions and for more worker representation on the Central Committee of the Communist Party. So it wasn't that he was moving anti-worker, it was that he was moving against opposition. So right there you see the seeds, you see, of a, of a system that could not develop naturally with an opposition, with checks, with internal debate and argument. A system that began to strain for uniformity, for siege, for lockstep uh, cooperation, the emphasis being on organizing, uh, <clears throat> getting the thing done, stop asking too many questions because everything was a life and death issue. When the Sandinistas came to power in Nicaragua 10 years ago, filled with ideals and hopes for their nation and their people, they discovered a very awful thing. And it wasn't about themselves, even though they had to do it to themselves. It was about that capitalist encirclement. They discovered that they needed a secret police. They discovered that they needed a security police. Because all around them, coming in from two borders and within their own society, were acts of sabotage, espionage, attack, mercenary invasion, and the like. And they understood that if the revolution was going to survive, 
it would have to build up instruments of state power, instruments of coercion even. And these instruments, by the way, can make mistakes. And these instruments can not only make mistakes, they can commit some serious crimes. Although in Nicaragua, the impressive record is how few crimes there were, given the utterly dire conditions they were under. So that kind of, that, that, that capitalist encirclement, which goes on unrelenting, attacking any existing socialist, communist, you don't want to call, if, by the way, if some of you don't want to call those societies socialists, don't call them socialists, call them window shades or camels, whatever you want to call them, as, as long as you know what I mean, that I mean, I mean the, I mean the public ownership of the means of production, using capital in a different way, not for capital accumulation per se as an end in itself, uh, a, a strong social wage, free education, free medical care, and uh, subsidized housing, subsidized food, subsidized bread, all those things that the Hungarians and Poles are now complaining about losing. That's what I mean by socialism. If you don't want to call that socialism, that's not what real socialism, real socialism is something that's going to exist someday when the world and people are better and different and it's going to come down and be in a much better form than those things were. That's fine. But in this world, see, I believe socialism is not that real beautiful goal in that society, participation, harmony, this and that. I believe that socialism is a process of struggle to achieve that thing. So. So, so, so just go along with my vocabulary, if you have tr even if you have trouble with it. Those socialist or communist societies suffered terrible distorting effects. If there had been no invasion, if there had been no espionage, if there had been no attack, if there had been no white guard armies burning villages, there wouldn't have been a Red Army of that size. There wouldn't have been a Stalin, there wouldn't have been a KGB. If there hadn't been a CIA, there wouldn't have been a KGB. If there hadn't have been, if there hadn't been a, 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 a NATO encirclement, there wouldn't have been a Warsaw Pact. And to lose sight of that fact is to lose sight of an essential force of what was going on over those 70 years or 10 years. And if you want to know what the Soviet Union went through in its early years, just look at what Nicaragua went through in these 10 years and then multiply that by 10. Every single one of those countries was targeted. They were targeted by missiles. They were targeted by acts of espionage. They were targeted by, as I say, uh, economic embargo and all sorts of other forms of aggression. They were targeted by in in incredible propaganda barrages and the like. Unrelenting, unremitting. The most targeted socialist country in the world as of a couple of years ago and actually still to today is not Nicaragua, was not Nicaragua. Not even Cuba, it was the Soviet Union. All those missiles were pointing to the USSR. They still are, and they're still building those missiles, and they're refusing to negotiate those missiles, if the sea-based missiles, which is where the U.S. has 75% of its first strike force. They have announced that they will not negotiate that 75% of the first strike force, only their 25%, which is land-based. And the Soviets, of course, 75% of their force is land-based, and only 25% is sea-based, and, and not of it, none of it working very well because they've got just a few choke points and they don't have that much access to sea. And they don't have all the fueling stations and harbors and whatever else that the U.S. has around the world. So that kind of encirclement is still there and that kind of thing is still going on. And so if you want to understand something about it, and that's why Gorbachev is one of the reasons he's trying to normalize international relations, even at the risk of giving away the whole store, 
It's because he's hoping that would give him a free... He also doesn't want to see the world blown up, of course, and he wants to end the Cold War, but he also wants to see that as a means of normalizing social relations in his own country. When you have, to, when you have a burden which is twice as heavy as we have in this country, a military burden of that sort, you've got to do something about it before you lose your whole economy. These countries also, by the way, suffered from a lot of other things. They suffered from centuries of underdevelopment and poverty. There's a lot of talk in the media right now, for instance, that Poland is being left in such bad shape. The communists have left Poland in such bad shape. I think there's a certain poetic justice about that. You should have seen Poland when the communists took it over, when the capitalists left it. It was a, it was a total, that's totally decimated. Hundreds of villages destroyed, whole cities, all of Warsaw destroyed, reduced to rubble. Poverty, malnutrition, starvation, that's what the communists took over and they built up a Poland that was worse or as bad as any third world country, in some cases worse in terms of what had happened to its industrial base and its infrastructure and everything else, and built it up. Um, so there's this incredible economic backlog. I mean, the countries that are taken over, Cuba, Nicaragua, and then what happens to them when they're in there. And by the way, as I said, let me repeat, not just these countries are targeted by capitalist encirclement, but even any kind of mildly populist nationalist country, a Libya, a Panama, a Guatemala under Arbenz, a Chile under Allende. Allende was a Marxist, but his government was a popular unity government made up of six different parties with all sorts of different tendencies, and he emphasized again and again that it wasn't a Marxist society. Um, another thing these countries have had, especially in Eastern Europe, very relevant to Eastern Europe, is ideological backwardness. Not only economic, but ideological backwardness. 